Our Father, we thank you that this is a, a day of just rest from our normal work for most of us, but also it represents the rest that we have in the Lord Jesus completing all the work that needed to be done so that we could be in relationship with you again. We thank you for the way that Paul writes in this book and uh, we think about the amazing riches he's already described to us and about um, the power that is available to us, the hope that we are able to participate in and with. And now as we come to a, an area of comparison really between the might and power and just supremacy of our King and Lord, the Lord Jesus, and the comparison with us, we, uh, we thank you that that is what we were and that because of Christ we are now something else. Give us eyes to know you better and hearts to love you more. Amen. So the Bible reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all were once no among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thank you, Renika. Thanks. Thanks, Renika. So we have been looking at Ephesians on and off, and um, we're wandering our way through Ephesians, and we've really been enjoying the. We really enjoyed the first chapter, where we got to see the riches that that um, you know, Paul gushes and just sort of sort of blurts out all these riches, all these wonderful things that, that God has for us. You know, the first half of chapter one. You know, the riches and the blessings and every spiritual blessing. You've been given every spiritual blessing. 
And the last half of the chapter, we saw where Paul mentioned several things that he'd been praying for, that not just know about him, but really know him, have that intimate connection with him, and that they would know the hope of his calling. And, and notice the language here, the hope, not, not that they would hope that he calls them, but they would know the hope of his calling that they've got, the calling that they've got, that they would actually experience that hope, that they might know the glorious riches of inheritance, that they would know and also that they would know that great power that God has for believers. And he, he explains and he sort of elaborates on that power and he uses the, the example that it's the same power that God exercised in raising Jesus from the dead and exalting Jesus above all things and above all things. And now in chapter 2, about that power because that power was, was used, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, but it's the same power... In our own conversion, that same power that raised us when God took us who were dead in sin and made us alive in Christ. So that same power is at work. And this is where we're going to have a focus today. Now, some of you know that, um, or many of you know that I'm into cars. I like buying and selling cars. I like fixing up cars. I, um, Sue will tell you if she finds me watching the TV, I'm usually on one of these sub-channels. You know how you've got channel 7, 9 and 10? I find the in-between ones like Nine Rush because it's all about cars. And I watch these car restoration shows. Anyone ever seen those car restoration shows? I've got a picture here of, of, of a resto. And they start with something often worse than that. You know, and you watch the show and you, you watch the process. And did you know that it only takes an hour to restore a car? Because <laughs> they do it in an hour on the TV. So... Anyway, they, they, they take you through the process. They find this rusty barn find or paddock find. You, you can see the road through the floor. There is no floor in it. And you're thinking, there is no way they can make something out of this. To the normal eye, there is no hope. And I and, and you might see nothing in it. And you trash it. You would throw it away. But the master restorers, they can see something that we can't. The workmanship that they do, they cut out rust. They cut whole sections of panel out and then they make new sections and weld them in. They make new parts. Sometimes the car's really old and they have to make new parts to make it new again. They sometimes have to put a new heart in it, put a brand new motor in it and, and fix it all up and make it all fresh again so that it can serve the purpose. Now, sometimes the purpose is they make them look like rat rods and that. I don't like that so much. I like it when they really restore them. But they make them beautiful again. And so here's that car afterwards. Who would like to own that? Gee, not many of you. I wouldn't have to fight many of you, would I? But you only appreciate that, appreciate that more now because you saw what it was like beforehand, didn't you? You know, when we see how horrible something is beforehand, go back to the old one. When you see that, and then you see the new one, and then you see the new, yeah. And then, you appreciate that really more. So we understand the beauty of something. We saw nothing in that wreck on the trailer. And having watched the process, we saw nothing in it. But the restorer did, and his workmanship has created this, what I would say is beautiful. Most of you say, meh. You might see something else, but I would say it's beautiful. Now, so that the listeners and we in Ephesians can appreciate in our conversion, 
Paul focuses a little bit on describing our condition before our, conven- before our conversion. And he does it in a little bit of detail and quite convincingly. He doesn't just say that you were dead in sin. You know, he goes, you know, in, in, in trespasses and sin. He, he has to elaborate because he's Paul. You know, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, if you didn't get it the first time. And if you didn't fit in there. Following the spirit that's now at work in the, in the sons of disobedience. By the way, amongst who we all lived. And he goes on and explains in quite detail. You've got a rusty floor. Your engine doesn't work. The windscreen's broken. We can't get this new part anymore. You can't refer The door handles have fallen off. The top truck and all that sort of stuff. That's how bad you were. You see, Paul focuses on that a little bit because we won't, as humans, we don't really appreciate our riches unless we fully appreciate our former poverty. You know, you don't appreciate something really like... How many of you are appreciating the fact that we aren't wearing masks today in church? Now, if I asked you in 2018, isn't it nice not to wear masks in church? You'd say, what? You know, how many of you really appreciated that you could go further than five kilometres from your house when the, when the rules changed? Now, we appreciate that so much more, or going to a restaurant or something, we appreciate that so much more because we know what it was like without it. And Paul is doing the same here. He's saying, you won't really appreciate your riches until you really understand your former poverty. Without a proper appreciation of the riches we have now, we're probably not going to respond to the responsibilities. We're calling this riches and responsibilities because the second half of Ephesians, Paul talks about the responsibility of the Ephesians. Without appreciating our riches now, we won't respond to the responsibilities we're going to look at later. Paul says we were dead. How so? How dead? Like physically dead? 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 What, what does he mean by that? Well, imagine... Like in physical death, your spirit is separated from the body. The body is now separated from the source of life itself. That's what Paul means. We were separated from God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we were separated from the source of life. So effectively, we were dead is what he's saying. The life source. And what did that? Well, sin did that. Following the world, the enemy, the passions of the flesh and what he elaborates there. And we all struggled here. No one is sinless. You know the word tells us that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we can all find ourselves in this example, can't we? And all that, all that sin is what Paul calls children, what made us children of wrath. So if we use the description of riches for what we have, then we are and then because we see them as riches, we appreciate them all the more. Then when we use the word poverty for where we were, there's that, that, that contrast, isn't there? So this might be a good old-fashioned sermon, perhaps. Maybe I can imagine an old preacher in the past would love to preach the first part of Ephesians 2, at least the first four verses or so. And it's really actually important for us to do this, to understand this, not to to whip ourselves or flagellate ourselves, but quite frankly, um, if I'm a good example of of, um, a human, and and we all are, we often feel like we do reasonably well. We often reckon we do pretty well, right? 
we're not that bad. Have you ever caught yourself thinking that I'm not that, well, at least I'm not as bad as, you know, shall I put some names in there? At least I'm not as bad as President Putin or... At least I'm not. A, we, but we do that because as humans we do that. We 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 feel like compared to some we're not that bad, but that tricks us. And Paul knows this. And like the Ephesians, what it does when it tricks us, it actually disempowers us, because self-reliance always has a fail point. And Paul knew that. And Paul knew that the Ephesians' self-reliance was going to fail. You know, self-reliance means we know not... And, and when, we, when we start thinking, we're not really that bad. Look, we sin a little bit and we do, you know, sneaky little bad things every now and then or habits, but we're not bad. But that tricks us. And Paul wants to be really confronting here because the Ephesians were being tricked by feeling like, well, you know, we're doing okay. But slowly but surely... And we, we begin to believe that we're actually the makers of our own fortune. We, we're actually travelling along quite well and we become less dependent on God. You know, growing up in the Christian Reformed churches, and some of you will remember this, we used to take a, a moment in every service. At the start of the service, we'd sing some songs and we'd take a moment at the start of the service to think about our sin and its consequences. And you had to do that practically. You had to go like this and you had to think of all the bad things. And when I was about eight years old, I needed a lot longer than the pastor gave us to remember all the bad things that I did. But that's what we had to do. We, we had to practically think about the things that we did. And, you know, it's probably true that it, it, you know, in any churches, when you do things all the time, perhaps it got a bit habitual and, and lost its, its meaning a bit. But there's a really good reason for that. There's a really good reason for us to focus on that in a celebration service. Think about that, I just said. There's a really good reason to think about that in a celebration service. We celebrate the riches, we sing songs, and we start the service with praise, and that's good. But then we take a moment to remember, to own, to confess, and to hear about God's restoration work. And that's what Paul's done in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. He's told us about all the riches and told us about all the wonderful things. And, and so we're, we're praising in the riches, but then he says, but hang on a second, you've got to stop and remember. And that's what we were doing in church in those days. That's where that came from, that was really important. Paul knows how important it is for us, how easily we can fall back into that, by the way, and then to truly appreciate what he just told us in chapter 1 or truly appreciate what we just sung at the start of our worship service, all that wonderful stuff. To truly worship and praise and glorify God, we need to know where we came from. So we're going to do that. This isn't the start of the service, but we're going to take 30 seconds. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes. Bow your head and I'm going to ask you just to think about the week that's gone. Think about things that the Holy Spirit might tell you and just recognise where you've fallen short and confess that before God. And here's a scripture for us to let's put it up on the screen for you. This is God's encouragement when we come to him and confess our sins. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest. That means it's, we can see it we, you know, in Jesus. Apart from the law. So we're no longer the law of sin. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all that is in Christ Jesus. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and makes us righteous. So when you go to a church and they do that at the start, or they do that anywhere, and we should do it more often, it's a good thing and Paul is helping us to see that. So then now, how do such sons of disobedience, sons and daughters in our case, sons of disobedience, how do they ever become holy and without blame that that, um, Paul talked about in Ephesians 1? Or how do they receive adoption um, into the family, adoption of sons and daughters, as we heard in Ephesians as well? Well, that's where Paul uses two of those most wonderful words in the Bible, and we've been talking about them this morning. This is all true. You were dead in your training. Tell me, how do you become holy and without blame? But God, he stepped in. And that's where Paul says, but God. God, being rich in mercy and having such love for us, he acted. Even though we were still dead, even though we were still separated from the source, even though we were still willfully disobeying, willfully rebelling, but God. Because of his love. And this love is not because of who we are. It wasn't because, you know, look, you know, he's a, he's a bad boy, but I see a bit of potential in him. We often do that, don't we? We see somebody that might be a bit rebellious, but there's a bit of potential there. That's not how God works. Oh, he's a bad boy, but I reckon it's not because of anything in us. It's not because of who we are, but it's because of who God is. He knows he is the master restorer. And he didn't wait till we were lovable. He loved us even when we were dead in sin and we provided nothing lovable to him. He made the move. He was the one to bridge the separation by offering his son Jesus. And this is what Jesus did for those of us who were dead in sin and and the Ephesians that Paul was talking to. He shared in our death, the death that was coming to us because we were dead. He shared in our death so that we could share in his resurrection and his resurrection life. He removed all that was ugly. He cut out all the bad bits. Everything that fouled our purpose. And he broke his heart to give us a new heart. Does that make you see your riches in a bit of a new light? Does that make you understand how rich we are? Does that give you an urge to worship or does that make you want to grow in the way that you serve and honour God? Recognising that that's what he did, that you were actually dead, that you couldn't do anything about it, but God. He didn't have to, but he did, because he loves us. This is our motivation, and not a reward for being a good boy or a good girl, or getting things right, or doing great church service, or you know, serving for so many years in a row. Our motivation is grateful hearts. That's what motivates us to passionate service. And Paul wanted them to understand that. So that when they celebrated their riches, because that's what he wanted them to do, their celebration would be great. And we need to understand that too. That that our celebration, when we celebrate worshipping together, when we celebrate what Jesus did for us, when we praise, when we worship, it has new depth because we know where it came from. 
And Lord's Supper is one of those things. We talk about celebrating Lord's Supper. And oftentimes we get this little bit of a, a contradictory thought. Hang on, we're remembering Jesus' death and the pain and the suffering that he went through. But we talk about celebrating Lord's Supper. Does celebrating it make more sense now after what we've just been talking about? Because we know what Jesus' death and resurrection did, that was the but God. We were, we were in trouble. But God sent his son Jesus to take away the sin of the world, including yours and mine. Lord's Supper is one of the ways we stop to appreciate the wonder of God's work in Christ to make us rich. And we say celebrate Lord's Supper as we remember and believe that we were dead in our sin but God. So we're going to stop and we're going to celebrate Lord's Supper right now, right where we're at but God. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he was with the disciples and they didn't know the but God stuff yet. You know, he had talked about it, but it was all mystery to them. And he was, where are you going? What are you doing? What's going on? And he took the bread and he broke it. And it might have been a bit of a bit of a interesting thing or a funny thing from here, but he broke it and said, This is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Broken so that you can be made whole, so that you can be restored to look beautiful again for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he took the cup a little later and he poured the cup and he said, and this is my blood that's poured out for you. My blood is going to be shed. I'm going to die. My heart is going to be broken. It's going to stop pumping. It's not going to work. It's going to be rusted like an old rusted motor so that yours can live and be pumping and vibrant and alive again. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Lord's Supper. We celebrate that we were dead in transgression, but God sent his son Jesus the shackles of sin. And we get to remember that. We get to celebrate that together. That's what we celebrate. So we're going to do that right now. If I can ask the leaders to come on up and we'll make two, uh, two rows. Um, and then you can come forward and go back to your seats with the elements and we'll just celebrate that together. This is a good moment to do that. You were dead in your transgressions and trespasses in which you once walked. But God sent his son Jesus. Take, eat, remember and believe that the body of Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all of our sin. And they didn't just break his body. His blood was shed. Take, drink, remember and believe that the blood of Jesus was shed for the complete forgiveness of our sin. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Great love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Hallelujah. You can do an African amen if you want to. You know, you can. Amen. Huh? 
So you can imagine the Ephesians reading this or someone reading it out to the church because we know that Paul sent this to the church. It might have been Timothy. It might have been someone who read it out. So where did this leave the Ephesians? And where does it leave us? But God, we were dead in our transgressions. Where are we now? That we were raised up in victory over death with Christ. We share in that victory. We won. There was a battle against death and we won. Jesus Christ won and we won with him. And he goes on to say that we're seated with Christ in heaven and you think, well, what does that mean? That's a citizenship statement. We, being made part of God's family, adopted, etc., now have full citizenship of heaven. We may not actually sit in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus right now, physically, yet, but because we are in Christ Jesus, because we were raised with Christ, we are now in Christ Jesus. We share in all that he is and all that he has. We sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus since our life and identity is in Christ. As he sits in the heavenlies, so do we. One commentator put it like this. I had a quote from a commentator. His name is Clark. And he says, And now we sit in heavenly places. In saying that, we have a right to the kingdom of God. We anticipate this glory and we're indescribably happy in the possession of this salvation and in our fellowship with Christ Jesus. So there's a sense where we have it. We sit in heaven. We have a right to the kingdom of God. We have the kingdom of God in us and we anticipate this glory that we're going to be shown and we're going to live it. We can anticipate that in the coming ages that he will show us. We will realize and experience the riches that he's given us. Even if we don't fully appreciate them or realize them right now. Now that's confidence building. That would have been hugely confidence building for the Ephesian church. That would have enabled the believers not only to survive their context, and we talked a few sermons ago about the context they lived in, the challenges they lived under. Knowing this would not only enable them to survive, but they'd be able to thrive. They'd be actually able to gain ground where they were. And this is what helps us not just to survive our journey here on earth or to survive our relationship with God and to survive the things that happen around us, but to thrive through them because we are in Christ and we know where we are. And this will help us display the glory of God in us and through us. This reflects not so much, not on our glory, it just reflects infinitely more on the glory of God than our own. And God will, but God will use us and he will use this church as he used the Ephesian church to display his glory. When we align ourselves and we understand that, that we're in Christ now, that, that, that we have, we've been saved and God has done what he has done to bring us into the kingdom, we can now be true reflectors of his glory to the world. And Paul reminds them again and he's reminding us that it's God's work, it's nothing that we did. It's God's gift. But he says that we receive it through faith. Okay, so it's a gift, but we get it through faith. So do we actually contribute? Are you confused? Do we contribute somehow? Is it somehow like God does the most of it, but we need to do this little bit of it? Well, faith together with the working of God is how we were raised with Christ. 
In other words, it's through obedient faith that we receive our salvation. When we exercise that faith, we're not earning salvation. It's the other way around. When we exercise that faith, we're receiving our salvation, which is God's grace. Think about it like this. Think of water flowing through a hose. The water is the most important part if you're thirsty or if a plant needs water or if you're washing your car. Huh? See, car reference. The water is the most important part. quench your thirst. The water does. But the hose brings the water to the place that you can benefit from it. Our faith does that. And how gracious is God that he's even the one that gives us that faith. He gives us his indwelling presence in the Holy Spirit to generate that faith in us, to give us the capacity to have that faith. You know, okay, so we were dead in our transgressions, but now we're saved and um, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies and it's all going to be good now. It's not about locking in our options and then just waiting for Jesus' return. We know that that's never Paul's motivation. It's never Paul's motivation to make people feel comfortable and say, well, look, you were terrible. Now you're good. Look what God did. You're really... Paul doesn't do that. And he doesn't do it here either. He helps the Ephesians see that God did all this because he has a plan. I know the plans I have for you. And sometimes they're interesting plans. And that plan is not on hold until you get to heaven. Verse 6 is our clue. Sorry. Until I get to heaven. Slide 6. Sorry, verse 10 is our clue. Have a look at verse 10. Because this is how Paul finishes. For we are his workmanship. Think of that car that's restored. Think of the workman, the, the master restorer. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. Clue. Paul's telling us that we're rich. He wants us to understand our riches. He wants us to see that we were dead, but God stepped in and made us alive. He restored us completely to something beautiful. And he restored us to uh, the capacity that we have to be with him in glory. But here's a clue. No surprise, right? This is all God. We can't take any credit. And notice the first word of verse 10. For, because, or therefore... So all that sort of stuff, because we're his workmanship. Designed by him for a specific purpose. Now workmanship, when you think of workmanship, um, you think of things like a... I always think of like this really master craftsman or, or carpenter that makes this beautiful stuff or a sculptor or something like that. We use the word workmanship for people like that. And it's good because... A, when something is good workmanship, a good workman, that means there's been thought, there's planning, there's purpose. And he's been specific in his purpose, or he or she, to design something to serve a specific role. But another way that workmanship is used is to describe the skill of the person doing it. He has great workmanship. She is a, has master workmanship. Because it displays the greatness of the maker, not just the article. The maker, the designer, has a plan for the use of his workmanship. And again, Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers that they have a purpose. And he's reminding us today. He told them of the riches, every spiritual blessing. He told them how they can know them and not just know about them. 
And now he's showing them how much God has done for them out of love and mercy for, because they're his workmanship, they're his design. He made them with a purpose, thought out ahead. That's true for you and me as well. They were not here in this place. They were not in Ephesus. They were not in that place, in that situation by accident. They weren't in that time, in that generation, with all the stuff going on around. There was no accident. And that's true for us as well. So that prepared beforehand. God had thought about this. He had things that he prepared for them to do and to be. It's not hard to see how that applies to us, is it? Because we are God's workmanship as well. How many times have you read that verse? Thought, ah, oh, that's encouraging. You know, God's got good things for me to do. And when he tells me, I'll figure out whether I'm going to do them or not. Basically, that's how we think, if we're honest. We're God's workmanship. The problem is we often think and act like we're the result of our workmanship. We often live like we're the result of our smarts, our forward thinking, our good planning. And remember what I said? We, maybe we're not that, we think we're not that bad. Well, Paul wants us to know just how far away, how out of function and purpose we were and how much restoration work was necessary to make us beautiful. But praise God that he is the master restorer, that we can, we can be astounded by his workmanship. He saw the potential that he placed in us. He wants us to see that we're his workmanship for his purposes and not our own. You see, if I look at myself, and I think this is true for most of us, I want to do the works that I've dreamed and prepared for. You want to do the works that you've dreamed up and prepared for, the things that you have goals and you know everything in life now tells us to set goals and to, to set your five-year plan and your 10-year plan and know where you want to get and you know from the moment you start earning money, you've got to pop money in superannuation and, and buy a property and they're all good things, but they eclipse God's purpose at times. Paul wants us to see that we're his workmanship for his purposes and not our own. And we're called to surrender to the master workman. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because there are implications, aren't there, if you want to design your life around God's will. Because that sometimes means you've got to let go of your own. You know, there are implications. If you decide, I'm actually really going to go where God calls me to go or do what God asks me to do, there are implications to that because that means when you, you know, we all know that, don't we? Like when you choose for something, you're actually choosing against something else. And we find it the most difficult to choose against ourselves. But if Paul's right and we're God's workmanship, and if Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, and God wants us to know that, that we're saved, that we were dead, but God stepped in and saved because we're his workmanship and we're created for good works which he prepared for, beforehand for us to do. Wow. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Not prayed. God, what's the, you know, what, what, you know, can, please can I have this job or please can I meet that beautiful girl or, or guy or, you know, get married and have six kids? Works that you had planned before, time for me to do. Show me them and I'll do them. Do an Isaiah. Huh? Here I am, send me. Ever done that? Can be scary when you do it because sometimes he actually listens and he does it. And implications. In this verse. 
But this would have energized the Ephesian church. You, you, you know, we can't imagine that because we aren't under the pressure that they were under. They would have had a greater appreciation of the riches, but also their purpose. There would be this sense, we can do this. This is tough. There's so much oppression, but we can do this. Look what God did for us. Look how he prepared us. And as we read on, we'll see how it builds unity in their body for outreach and for kingdom growth. You know, when we look at the world around us and even perhaps some of the unique challenges that we, we have as Christians and in the world now and maybe in your own life, we can be assured that we have been restored perfectly for the purpose that he called us, for the works that he prepared in advance for us to do. That gives us courage and that gives us confidence, as it would of the Ephesians. And surrendering, believe it or not, can sometimes actually open the door to seeing the wonderful work of Jesus in and through your life in a greater measure. When we decide to align ourselves with the plan of the one who knows us best, who designed us, and we do the things that he planned in, our, in advance for us to do, all of a sudden our lives work. Things work. And they work for his glory. Is that good news? I think so. Let's pray.